Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast channel. I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School. In this podcast, you'll hear from Professor of Marketing at Melbourne Business School, Jill Klein, and her 88-year-old father and Holocaust survivor, Jean Klein, on resilience and how certain strategies can help us overcome the extreme and everyday cases of adversity at home and at work. Hello, I'm Professor Jill Klein. Today we're going to be talking about resilience and I will be talking about the psychology of resilience and what the research tells us are great tools for being more resilient in the face of adversity. And we'll be talking about adverse situations that can often occur in a business setting. These could be personal things like not getting the promotion that we had hoped for or having a relationship with a key client blow up on us because they become very dissatisfied with our work. Um, a merger or acquisition situation that's creating a great deal of disruption. These are all adverse events in the business world that we might encounter. We also, any of us, can encounter personal adverse events. We can become ill or injured. We can have something happen to a loved one. And for those circumstances, of course, resilience can be extremely helpful. My dad will be providing some of his own examples of the strategies he used in his extremely resilient response to being a 16 and 17 year old in a Nazi concentration camp. And there's a couple of things I'd like to say first up before we start in this. One thing is that my father's situation was incredibly extreme. I think it's hard to imagine an adverse event that could be worse than being in a concentration camp. And so I understand that when we talk about our business adversities or our personal adversities, that those are still a world away from what happened to my father. But I think the reason why my father's situation can be helpful to us in our own lives today is that if a 16, 17-year-old kid could come up with these fantastic resilient strategies to cope with such a desperate situation, then certainly we can learn from that and we can develop some tools that we could use in our own much more everyday normal types of adverse situations. And I know my father has told me a number of times as we developed this session together and we worked together presenting on resilience, that if his terrible experiences, if one good thing that could come out of that experience is people learning about it and learning how to be more resilient because of what he went through, then that's a win for him. And so that's important. I think the other thing that I like to mention right up front is that a tremendous number of very strong and very resilient people died in the Holocaust. If you ask any survivor how did they survive, they're going to tell you about all the lucky things that happened to them. And my father had many, many lucky things. Random chance fell in his favor a number of times. And that was required to survive the Holocaust. You had to have good luck over and over and over again. At the margin, if you had all that random chance in your favor, then at the margin, your mental fortitude could definitely make a difference. And my dad saw this in the daily life of the camps, how the determination and the desire to keep alive and to continue the struggle to survive could definitely help someone get through the day. 
So let's start out by talking about what resilience is. There are a lot of definitions out there. Resilience is a very hot topic. I like to go with a pretty straightforward, simple definition that resilience is the ability to maintain relatively stable, healthy levels of functioning following an adverse event. And I think more than just that, more than being able to keep functioning through adversity, there's also a question of what happens over multiple events. So when you have an adverse event, do you develop skills and abilities that make you stronger? And so you move up the spiral of resilience in the sense that when another adverse event hits, are you actually stronger than you were before? Or does the adverse event break you down in such a way that when another adverse event hits, you're in worse shape than you were before? So what you want with resilience is to move up a spiral of resilient abilities so that with each adverse event that hits us, we get stronger and stronger and stronger, and we develop human capabilities and skills and talents to deal with adversity. Now, there's been a lot of research on resilience, actually for decades, looking at what are the effects of being resilient. And this research shows us that resilience is a key to success in work and satisfaction in life. Often in the business world, our first couple of promotions we often will get because we're working harder than others, uh, we're bright, we're applying our intellectual abilities, and that's what gets us our first couple of promotions. But as you get higher in the ranks, other things start to matter and start determining who's going to continue to rise in the organization. And that's where things like social intelligence and resilience come in. Are you able to demonstrate the ability that when things get really rough, when the environment changes, when you have to really lead through difficult times, are you able to do that in a resilient nature and get stronger and stronger through those adversities? Um, my dad is here with me today to talk about his adverse event, and his adverse event was one where he was an innocent victim in something very, very difficult that happened. And my dad will tell you about his situation, and then I'll come back and talk a little bit more about resilience, and we'll show how my dad used various resilience strategies in order to cope with his very difficult situation. So, Dad, do you want to give a little background? Yes, indeed. I was born into an Eastern European Jewish family. My father, Herman, was a merchant. My mother, Berta was a typical Jewish mother taking care of the children and the home. Two older sisters, Lily and Olga. I went to school, learned some languages in the eastern part of Czechoslovakia. In 1939, this eastern part was given to Hungary. This was the time in Europe when borders changed uh, on a daily basis, practically. This is also the same area where the Germany occupied in 1944, and I remember vividly the morning that my family had to stand in front of our beautiful house, and Hungarian soldiers came by and checked our names off the list and took us out to this brick factory outside our house in Bereksas. And this was our new home, very frightening to be put in a situation like this. And after a couple of weeks at the brick factory, one morning we were woken up by Hungarian soldiers and they told us there was a train waiting for us. There are a lot of all sorts of stories, you know, rumors saying that we will be taking uh, 
other parts of Europe and we'll be working in factories and on farms, etc., etc. We were put into cattle cars. The SS officer who was in charge of counting the Jews, uh, apparently the big plan was that 80 human beings will be in each cattle car. And when they got to my family, my father was 77, my mother 78, sister Lily 79, sister Olga 80. 80 people in one car. I was number one in the next car. There is nothing you can do. I wanted to stay with my family, but they were SS all around us with machine guns, and I was just had to do what I had to do. A train ride took us three days and three nights. Terrible, terrible situation. We were hungry. We were famished. The stench is horrible. And once we arrived to this unknown place, all we saw was barbed wires and big, big uh, barracks. And we didn't know where we were and what's going to happen to us. The order came for men and boys from about mid-teens to one side and women and children to the other side. Hardly had time to say goodbye to my mother and two sisters. I'm standing next to my father and we were marching forward to the so-called selections. We have absolutely no idea where we were again. We don't know what's happening. All I knew was that an SS officer points to my father to go to the left and points to me to go to the right. I found out the next day that this is Auschwitz-Birkenau, the biggest killing machine on the face of the earth. The fact that my father was sent to the left meant that he was killed in the gas chambers and that was the end of my father. I had absolutely no idea what happened to my mother and two sisters. I was in Auschwitz just a couple of weeks when I was picked out of one of the selections and shipped out from there to my next destination. And we'll come back to my dad in just a, a few minutes to talk about uh, the next stage of his journey. Uh, when we think about adverse events, and of course the adverse event that my father is, is talking about is about the greatest adversity we could possibly imagine. And most of us are so very lucky that our adversities are pretty small compared to my dad's event. And yet the adversities that we face in our everyday life uh, can still be quite difficult for us sometimes. So when we have an adverse event that happens, we often feel as though there are immediate emotional consequences. So we learn about the adverse event or we experience it and we feel upset, angry, tearful, frightened. And that response happens so quickly that we fail to actually notice that something very, very important goes on between those two things, between the adverse event and the emotional consequences. What's going on in between is how we're interpreting the event, our appraisal of the event. And it turns out the two of us can go through the exact same event. You and I could go through the exact same event but I interpret it in one way, you interpret it in another way, and we have very, very different emotional consequences. So it turns out that that interpretation is often what determines how we feel as opposed to the event itself. And that's the part that we have some control over. 
This appraisal can be broken down into three different components. One is attribution. When an adverse event happens, we quite often think, why did it happen? How did this happen? And um, we call that attribution. A second component of appraisal is meaning. What does this mean? And a third component of appraisal is coping. What can be done? What can I do about this? So that's attribution, meaning, and coping. So let's start with attribution and just talk a little bit about how attribution works. So let's imagine that you had been working for a couple of years towards a promotion at work. And you really thought that you were going to get it. You really thought that you deserved it. And then it turns out somebody else got the promotion. There are a number of different types of attributions that we can make for that event. And they're kind of on a dimension. And one extreme on the dimension is what's called the self-serving side of the dimension, which is to blame everything and everyone else. It was somebody else's fault. My boss is just terrible and doesn't recognize my talents. Uh, somebody sabotaged me. I wasn't given the resources that I needed. Those would all be self-serving attributions, that this happened not because of me, but because of somebody else's fault. The other end of that dimension of attributions are globally negative and permanent self-attributions. I didn't get this promotion because I'm a complete idiot and always will be. And so that's the opposite extreme. Neither of those extremes are very good for us. We're not learning. We're not going to improve with either of those types of attributions. So with the self-serving attributions, I'm so busy blaming other people in other circumstances that I fail to look at what I could do to improve. On the other hand, if I decide this is because I'm just horrible and lack talent and uh, will never be successful, that doesn't leave me much room to grow and, in fact, might make me feel pretty depressed um, or might make me decide to exit the situation and not keep trying. In the middle of these two extremes, there are much healthier attributions. What you want to be able to do with your attributions in an adverse event is take responsibility where it is appropriate and look for opportunities for coping with the event and learning and improving because of the event. And one terrific way that you can get to that healthy space in the middle of that attribution dimension is to ask yourself, if I could do this over, what would I have done differently? By doing that, you start taking some responsibility. So even if you feel like you didn't get the promotion that you wanted because somebody didn't see the good work that you were doing, if you ask yourself, if I could go back six months and do this again, what would I do differently? You might identify that maybe you should have been managing up a little bit better. Maybe you should have been communicating about your activities and the wins that you were achieving. Um, and so that's sort of the idea of the healthy attributions is you look for where you can take responsibility and grow and develop. And when you do that and you're able to make those healthier attributions, that's going to set you up very nicely for coming up with some great coping strategies. So after attribution, the next part of appraisal is meaning. So the first part was why did this happen? That was attribution. The second part is, what does it mean? And when 
something really negative happens, we often go into a mode of asking ourselves, how big or small is this? Is this a huge setback? Is this a small blip on the radar screen? How big of a deal is this event? Um, what does it say about me? What does it mean about my identity and who I am? Sometimes adverse events lead to us questioning the world around us. What does this event tell me about the world and how safe it is or how protective it is or how fierce or gentle and caring the world is? So often with adversity, we go through some wrestling with the meaning of the event for ourselves and for the world around us. And now I'd like to turn um, back to my dad to tell you the next part of his story where he started grappling with the meaning um, of what was happening to him. In the part that he's told you so far, I think he was pretty much in shock. And my dad told me once that when he finally came to grips with what had happened to him a week ago, new things were happening. So that the, that whole process of being taken from their home, put on the trains, going to Auschwitz, I think he was very much in shock through that whole time. But the next stage of his story, he's going to go to a labor camp and he's going to get into a routine. And it's when he gets into that routine that he's going to be able to start assigning meaning to what's happening to him. So dad, do you want to tell the next bit of your sure. story? Well, uh, one morning in so-called selections in Auschwitz, we are standing in attention and SS officers are just pointing to people, including myself, and we have to fall out and they march us out to the same railroad siding where my family arrived and they put us on the same kind of cattle car trains and our next destination is Wolfsburg. Never heard of it, don't know what we are going to do here. Of course, it turns out this is my first slave labor camp. The whole bottom line in getting to Auschwitz is 80% of the newly arrived Hungarian Jews will be killed in the gas chambers and that 20% will be sent to slave labor camps all over Europe to be killed through slave labor. Uh, it is terrible. We are working from sunup to sundown six days a week and before you know it, you, the first thing you see is just a few people dead in the morning. And then as weeks go by, you just see more and more people dying from hunger, from all sorts of diseases, from accidents in the work site. And you get to the point that all of a sudden you have to sort of look at my situation and see what can I do to try to stay alive. And I come up with a couple of things that keeps me going. One of them is... If the SS kills me, they win. If I stay alive, I win. And I was determined, knowing that my father has been killed in Auschwitz, and I don't know where my mother and two sisters are, I kept telling myself, my mother and two sisters will be going home, and not just for that, but for myself, I need to stay alive. I told myself these two things, every night before I fell asleep exhausted from the day's work till the next morning. One of the things we know about resilience is that as people make meaning of their adverse events, they can see the meaning of the event as a challenge or as a threat. 
And I think one thing that's amazing with about what my father just said is that he was in the most threatening situation we could possibly imagine, but he came up with a challenge translation for himself of the event. He decided to take the optimistic view that his mom and two sisters would get back home, that they would survive, and he couldn't stand the idea that they would come home and they would lose him and his father. And so that was his underlying motivation. That was his meaning for survival. And then also his construal of the situation as this life and death challenge that he was going to uh, win the situation by surviving and he was not going to let them win. And I think that's the most amazing example I could possibly think of for how you could change a threatening situation into a challenge situation in terms of the, the meanings that you're, you're making. Okay, so now we have talked about attribution, we've talked about meaning, and the third component of appraisal is coping. What can be done about the adverse situation? What are the coping strategies that we can engage in? And so I'd like to have my dad talk about some of the coping strategies that he used when he was in this slave labor camp. There are different ideas, let's say, that I had to use in the, uh, at Wolfsburg. First of all, I realized that I'm all by myself. Yes. And I was making friends with young prisoners because the young prisoners were always more optimistic than the older ones. Uh, there was a lot of giving up with the older prisoners. Uh, there, tremendous amount of luck is what happened to prisoners in, in different camps. In my case, it was a civilian engineer. Due to the fact that I took German in uh, high school, so-called gymnasium, I was fluent in German and an engineer came to survey the roads that will be built by the prisoners, and they asked for somebody to help him with his equipment. And when the SS sergeant asked uh, the young prisoners, when we were standing in attention, who speaks fluent German, I put my arm up. I didn't know what I was, you know, volunteering for, but I figured if they want to kill a hundred of the prisoners today, they can do it. Why should they pick on one? So I put my hand up. He took me out to the, de uh, the gate of the camp. There was a civilian. And this man took a tremendous, tremendous chance. He could have wound up in the same camp I was in as a prisoner by giving me food. Every day when he went to eat his lunch with the SS soldiers, uh, he left me some food under the bench in the empty mess hall. And before I had to join up with my work party to march back to the camp. He waited outside while I went in, put the hard food in my pocket, which was food I haven't seen now for about eight months, and uh, to share it with my friends, the younger prisoners. This man, who was a German, a Christian, saved my life. It's unbelievable. And I thank him to this day. I want to live, I want to get home, because I was so sure that my mother and two sisters will be home that I wanted to make sure that I come home at least the only son comes home instead of the father dying in Auschwitz. 
And Dad, that was a huge goal that you had to get home, and you didn't even know how long you were going to be there, or when the war might end, or when Liberation Day might come. So, how did you manage such a huge goal? It's basically you had to break it down into one day at a time. You can't say, "Okay, in X number of months, I'm going to be free, and I'm going to go home." The situation and everything that goes on all around you, the people dying constantly. Uh, you had to come up with just manageable segments of your life. So this is exactly what I did, one day at a time. And then next morning I started over until I went to sleep. And each night you said you were going to wait. You were determined to wake up exactly, in the morning. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to live. I just made this my number one priority. You know, I just couldn't see myself. Dying and not getting home because I was. Of course, it would have been, would would have been possible that my mother and two sisters were already dead, but I didn't know. I put this in my brain that they are working in a slave labor camp, which has turned out that was exactly what they were doing in an ammunition factory, and that carried me from day to day and finally to liberation. And then, after you were in that camp for some months, the Russian front kept getting closer, and Correct. so they marched you、uh, towards the west, away from the front, where you were sort of in a collection camp where there was no exactly. work. Exactly. Basically, what happened was we heard more and more war noises. You know, cannon fire coming closer and closer. We knew something was happening, and then、uh, it was just one of those things that、uh, they just. Announced that everybody, all the prisoners who are able to march, will march to our next destination, which was a real concentration camp. They took all the slave labor camps in the vicinity, and those who survived would be marched in here. There's no more work. There's just dying. Your rations are hardly any food, so the death rate was horrific. And. The same thing that I had in Wolfsburg is still go still fresh in my mind about getting home.、Um, and when you got to that new camp,、um, you made a couple of friends, right? Right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes.、Uh, two Polish kids about my age. I was seventeen、uh, by this time. When I went into the camps, I was sixteen.、Uh, this must have been like March of nineteen forty-five. I made friends with them because we could stay together. There's no work, so we just stay together in the same barracks, close to each other.、Uh, talked about hopefully getting home. You know, we sort of try to be sort of up under the circumstances. It wasn't easy. And but we decided we're going to call ourselves the Three Musketeers. We're going to fight our way out of here, not literally, but we're going to make it. So we gave a lot of help to each other mentally, and it really helped a lot knowing that there's somebody who is in the same situation as you are, with the same mindset, really helping each other. If if one of us was a little bit weaker. The other two might have given him a, a bite of your bread that you got that was hardly a slice, and you just became friends for life. Of course, as it happened, 
I have absolutely no idea what happened to them. So you can hear in my dad's story a number of different coping strategies that he used in the camps. And it turns out that a great deal of research on resilience tells us that these are actually very, very effective coping strategies. And the ones that come through in the research are having flexible thinking. So being able to see the adverse event or the situation you're in from multiple perspectives. Sometimes when an adverse event hits us, we get stuck seeing it in a certain way and we can't quite get ourselves out of that view. And that means that there might be alternatives for coping and dealing with the event that we never actually get to see. So flexible thinking is really important. And I think my dad showed that when he uh, took this incredibly threatening situation and, and made it into a challenge for himself. Another key coping tool that comes out of the research is social support. A lot of times when an adverse event happens, we're kind of tempted to withdraw. And it turns out that getting and receiving social support from others through adversity is extremely important. And it um, helps a great deal in coping with an adverse event and recovering quickly from an adverse event. Another coping tool is experiencing positive emotion. So making sure that you actually get the chance to laugh if you can, or uh, to enjoy something, or uh, participate in some event uh, that you like to do. So, you know, in my dad's case, he always had a buddy, and, and at the end of his camp experience, he had these two buddies um, that were always together. And his way of seeking out positive emotion was to make friends with other prisoners who, like my father did, had a positive view of uh, what was going to happen, that there was going to be life after the camp. Another thing that I think we see with resilience and we also see very strongly with my dad is having a goal. What's your motivation? What is your reason for wanting to persevere through a difficult event? What is it that you see at the other side that you're hoping to get to? And then sometimes because that goal can be too far away or too big at the moment, we can also break it down. So for my dad, he broke things down to one day at a time. And we can also do that with the situations that we're in. What's our goal? What do we hope to achieve? And how can we break that down into manageable steps? And when we think about coping strategies, let's also go back to the example we've been using of not getting the promotion that we had hoped to get. What this means is being able to look at that situation through different frames, using flexible thinking, getting social support, making sure that we have somebody, at least one person that we can talk to about the setback that we're experiencing trying to see the upsides and experience positive emotion as soon as we feel comfortable being able to do that because that's going to help us get through the event. And then what is the goal? What's our next goal that we would like to achieve? And how can we break that down into manageable steps? So that would be a way of taking all the coping strategies and applying it to a career setback. You've been listening to Melbourne Business School's Professor Jill Klein and her father Jean Klein on resilience. After this short break, we'll hear from Jean about how he was liberated from the Nazi concentration camp. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations 
and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more, and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed, and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Welcome back. Now let's hear from Gene Klein on how his resilience strategies paid off when he was liberated from the Nazi concentration camp. So here we are. Uh, it is now the spring of 1945 and the three musketeers come out from the barracks in the morning because you really can't stand the, the people dying all around you and the crying and screaming and praying that's going on. And as soon as you get out, the first thing you notice that the machine gun towers are empty, the SS guards are gone, and this could be good news or bad news. They either left, you know, because the Russian front was coming closer. We didn't know this, but we heard the bombardment or that they're going to come in here and kill all the prisoners so we don't have any witnesses to the horror they created. And we realize that they are gone. And sure enough, here comes a Russian soldier on a horseback, and the three musketeers are at the gate of the camp, and the Polish kids can talk to the Russian soldier because Slavic languages. And he says, uh, I'm an advance guard, the Russian army is coming, they are going to be doctors and medication and food, and you're free. So this is a moment that you'll never forget, and the three of us are running all over the camp, you know, saying in all the languages we know we are free, and it, you never forget that sound. And then uh, I'm examined, I have typhoid fever, I got my medication, they tell me to go, get on the bus to go in the hospital, I'm not going to the hospital, I'm going to the station, I'm going to go home. I am going on a cattle car, the same kind of car that took my family to Auschwitz, but the doors are open. They are full of soldiers heading home and full of survivors of assorted concentration and slave labor camps. I'm about halfway home and I get off the train to get some food. Somebody tapped me on my shoulder, young woman still wearing her striped dress, her concentration camp uniform who recognized me and she said to me, I got good news for you. I was in a Nazi ammunition factory and your mother and two sisters were prisoners with me and they have survived and they're on the way home. So this was the best news that I could possibly get. And not only that, but I sort of told myself, how smart were you to tell yourself that your mother and two sisters, you know, will be going home? And that gave me the incentive to also make sure that I get home. Okay, so if we wrap up what we have learned so far about resilience, and, and that's been uh, illustrated so nicely by my dad, we have an adverse event, there's emotional consequences, but the appraisal that comes in between those two things is tremendously important. And that appraisal includes the attributions that we make for why something happened, the meaning we put on the event, and our coping strategies, what we think we can do about the event. Now, when you are leading in an organization, how do you engage in resilient leadership? What can you do to take some of the learnings that you've gotten from this podcast to share 
at work in leading your organizations through difficult times. And I think there are a couple of suggestions. One is to try and model resilient appraisals. So for example, with attributions, once you're able to coach yourself into the healthy zone of attributions, start saying out loud where others can hear you why you think something happened. So you might not want to do this right away. If you're still in the I'm blaming everybody phase, you might want to keep that part to yourself. Um, but when you get to the healthy zone of the attributions where you're starting to take some responsibility, you're starting to see uh, what opportunities there might be in the situation and so forth, that's the time to start saying things like that out loud. Um, when Bad things happen in organizations. People are often very confused. They don't know what to make of it. And they're very influenced by each other. And they're particularly influenced by the leader because everybody is going to look towards the leader to hear what he or she thinks is going on. And so when you're resilient, when you're making healthy attributions, when you're putting challenge meanings on the situation, and when you're coming up with great coping strategies, that's going to be tremendously important to the people around you, either the people you're leading or your colleagues. The other thing you can do is listen to the appraisals of others. What appraisals are the people who work with you making? So if you ask your team, how do you see this? What do you think is happening here? And then listen to their answer. Where are their attributions? Are they in those unhealthy extremes? And can you help them get to that healthy middle point of taking some responsibility and developing uh, perceptions of opportunity and coping strategies? And listen to the meanings. If you ask your team that you're leading, for example, what do you think this all means? Listen to their meanings. Are they threat meanings? Are they meanings that are focusing on the negatives and the threatening aspects of the situation? Or are they challenge meanings? And if they're threat meanings, what challenge meanings can you offer to help coach them, to help them develop challenge meanings for the situation that they're in? And then think about the menu of coping strategies, the flexible thinking, the social support, the positive emotion, the having the goal, and the breaking it down. And how can you share that with those that you are leading uh, to help start generating ideas for coping strategies? And in this way, you can not only become more resilient yourself to adverse circumstances, but also help lead your organization through very difficult times. So thanks so much for taking time during your flight to listen to our session here on resilience. Um, if you'd like to learn more about my father's experiences and his sister's experiences, I've written a book. It took me 15 years to do it in my copious spare time, but the book is called We Got the Water, Tracing My Family's Path Through Auschwitz, and it's available on Amazon. And also, if you'd like to follow my father, his Facebook page is Gene Klein dash Holocaust survivor. And whenever my dad is in the media or we have different events, we will be writing about that on the Facebook page. So uh, we'd be happy to have you keeping in touch with us. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to Professor Jill Klein and her father, Jean, and their moving talk on resilience. You can learn more about Jill and Jean's story through Jill's book called We Got the Water, Tracing My Family's Path Throughout Auschwitz 
which is available on Amazon. You can also read more about Jill's research on resilience and other related leadership topics on mbs.edu.